Well, good morning again. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. We're back in our study of the Gospel of John as we uh, took a Sunday off last week just to look at the how Scripture speaks of law and gospel. And that's important, very important in understanding why the Pharisees were so stirred up and why, uh, why they were so anxious about the law, that Jesus keep the law and not break the law, and why this is going to come up again and again and again, and they found it so offensive. And so I think that was important to understand, and also it's important to understand how, how the Bible fits together, how law and gospel, there's lots of laws in the Bible, there's the gospel, and sometimes, you know, as you've heard me say many other times, you can kind of bog down in your read through the year, uh, you know, you're getting all these laws, and they seem to have no application for us today uh, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy or Leviticus and other places, and so you think, you know, so it's important to think through how those things work and why violating some of those things was so offensive to the Pharisees, and even what goes into and what stands behind the holiness of God in Jesus' ministry. So I hope you found that helpful uh, as we walk through this. So today we're looking at verses 18 to uh, 29. So let us hear now the word of the Lord, John, the Gospel of John. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you. These are important things, and Jesus keeps saying this, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is God's inspired, inerrant word. May he bind it to our hearts. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, this morning I pray, as I do often, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Oh, God, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, you would give us insight into this text, insight for living, that the theology of this text would drive us to holy living, Lord. There's so much in here. So give us grace now as we examine this, uh, this important uh, section, Lord, of your word. We thank you for the privilege. Use it to transform us, Lord. If there be those here who do not know you, use it, God, to begin a work in them of conviction and drawing unto yourself, that they might know you as Lord and Savior and not live for your glory all the days of their life. Lord, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, let me ask a question that I think the Scripture asks over and over and over. Don't only really ask it this way, but really this is what's behind a lot of Scripture. What is humility? What is humility? One of my children who recently, uh, is recently adulting asked me if you could give me one piece of advice, what would it be? And I said, I would say pursue humility at all costs in your life, every part of your life. Because pursuing humility, you'll have to pursue Jesus. So what is humility? Well, humility in Scripture does not mean pretending to be worthless or refusing positions of responsibility. You know, that's just, no, I couldn't do that. <laughs> but knowing and keeping the place God has appointed for me, whether it is the public exposure of high leadership position like Moses, remember Numbers 12, 3 describes him as a humble leader, the most humble man in, in Israel, the most humble man in the world, or the obscurity of being a servant, that we rest in those things. It requires great humility to do that, doesn't it? Either one of those things. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, and most of you know this, he said, I am lowly in heart. And he meant that he was following the Father's earthly plan for his life. Now, this is the creator of the universe, right? Following the Father's plan for his life. And following the Father's plan in obedience meant not doing his own will, but the will of the Father, the will of God who sent him. And ultimately, it meant the definitive act of humility, which is going to the cross and paying for our sins so that we can say, we can sing here as we love to do. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin and lift a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Humility is the ability to see spiritual reality, to see things as they really are. And I want this in the back of your minds as we walk through. There's so much in here, but we're going to come back to this a little later. But for Jesus, it was understanding the Father's will to be the Savior of sinners, submitting himself to, wholly to it, as we'll see throughout the Gospel of John. My friend William Farley, in an excellent book called Gospel, Power and Humility, and I'm going to put that book, I forgot it today, but I'm going to put it back on my recommended books, but Gospel, Power, Gospel, Power and Humility, excellent book. Uh, William Bill's an excellent writer. But he said, for us, humility is the capacity to see myself in God's light in the context of his holiness and my sinfulness, to see myself as God sees me, okay? Of course, doing what God wills. This is what Jesus is doing. So, so humility is submitting entirely to his will, laying down our own will. And so Jesus, the sinless son of God, is our ultimate exemplar of that. And we begin to see that right here this morning. I mean, this is Jesus Christ who could have done anything he wanted to do, right? The most powerful human being, fully God, yes, but fully man, yes, Whoever lived, and yet he's doing not his own will, but as we begin to see here, the will of the Father. What is that? Well, we're going we're gonna to see that all through here. And so we begin with how the Pharisees accuse him. The Jews, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the accusation. We kind of left off with this two weeks ago in, in verse 18. They accuse him of claiming to be God. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to what? To kill him. They're not just mad at him and say, boy, he's got a, well, this man's got one more ego. I said, no, we want to kill him. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath by healing this invalid on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, which is to make the audacious claim to be equal with God. The Jews understood loud and clear 
unlike the world out here, right? They understood what Jesus was claiming. He was calling God his Father. And Jesus represents himself as the one who has the authority over the Sabbath, as the author of the Sabbath. He goes back, which goes back to the created order. The authority goes back to the, the order of creation. Luke 6, 5, Jesus said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And being Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I'm the creator. I made it. I can determine what we do with the Sabbath. And so the Jews understood. <laughs> there was no stuttering here. They understood loud and clear what he meant by that. Jesus is making himself equal with God. He's claiming to be deity. And they seek, it made them seek to kill him, which is, of course, what? The Father's will. Jesus was born to die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth by dying himself, right? So we have the accusation there, which we're going to, this next section, we're going to spend a lot of John being, him being accused and opposed. And they're going to be on the hunt for him to kill him. And so he comes, here comes the clarification. And really, this is going to be the second point of the whole, this whole section. Jesus is God. He's not going to make any bones about it, right? Jesus is God. And this is seen in the fact that Jesus does what the Father does. I do exactly what he does. I don't do my own will. I humbly submit to his will. Again, this is what defines humility. It's why I'm, why I'm, I'm having you, you say, well, humility is not in here. Right, but I mean, this is what Jesus is doing. He's humbling himself. This is the humiliation of Christ. And it really begins right here. And we'll see it the rest of John's gospel, all the way to Calvary. <clears throat> in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the son does, whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. This tells us there's complete unity of purpose and action within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, right? Three, three distinct persons, but yet one God, and they're, they're completely and utterly unified in person. They all have the same will, essentially. They're not doing, you know, the Holy Spirit's kind of got his, you know, he's got his blog, and Jesus sort of has his church over here, and the Father's proud of both of them, you know. You sure they've gone out and done well for themselves, the kingdom, no, 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 no. I think we tend to think of God that way sometimes, the Trinity. And it's hard to get our minds around. I mean, even the greatest theological minds in the history of the church have studied, have never plumbed the depths of the Trinity, and we won't either. But even their interrelation with one another. But they were perfectly unified. And that's all, really all that we need to see here. We're going to unpack the Trinity more as we walk through this. But really, that's the singular truth here today. They were completely unified, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God within the Trinity. And he says there's a greater work than healing the lame that's coming. And what does he mean by this? Raising the dead. Spiritually, as in the case, but also bodily. We're going to look at these two here in a minute. No wonder, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. This is a good thing to write maybe out there in the corner of your, you know, the notes. Covenant of redemption was a, a covenant because it was an agreement between two parties. It was an agreement for the foundation of the world within the Trinity. That the Father would send the Son to save sinners... And the Son would go to save sinners, and the Spirit would apply the Son's death and resurrection to sinners. That's why you're sitting here this morning. That's how you're sitting here this morning, and how you're sitting here wanting to listen to the Bible because you have been changed, and that plan was hatched in the covenant of redemption among the members of the Trinity before the foundation of the world. It's not plan B. Not plan B, like, boy, those human beings messed up. 
and now I've got to go down and clean it up. What are we going to do? Well, you know, it's, it's an elders meeting. We do that. What are we going to do? We say that lots in our elders meetings, don't we? No. You say, yep, Clay, what are you going to do about this? Trinity, it's not the way it is among the Godhead. There's a plan before the foundation of the world, and it would happen. And it has happened, and you are exhibit A as to why, how that happened. And the fact that it has happened. The Second London Confession, I love the way it puts this. It says, and I think I put this on the board. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. There we go. First person, or the second person of God had. His only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator between God and man. The prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. Covenant redemption for the foundation of the world. You're, you're, that's how secure your salvation is. This didn't just. This isn't just something that, uh, you know, God responding to some kind of human drama. No, no, no. For the foundation of the world. I love the way the confession puts it there. He called us, he, re he redeemed us for the foundation of the world, called in time, he redeems, saves you, calls you, calls you, justifies you, sanctifies you, and will glorify you. In verse 20, Jesus describes the oneness of the Father and the Son as a union of love. This is important. The, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And the verb translated love here is phileo. In the Greek, the, the love of deep feeling, of warmth and affection, the kind of love the body of Christ exemplifies, the kind of, body we, the kind of love we should have for one another. This is what's behind, stands behind all the one another's in Scripture. It's what should typify your marriage as a picture of Christ's love for his church. This phileo love, deep feelings, warm affection. We ought to be the warmest people in the world, oughtn't we? Sometimes I'm, I'm mystified as to my Reformed brothers and sisters. Sometimes we can be the chilliest and the coldest people, <laughs> even colder than our pagan neighbors, and it should never be because the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts as first exemplified between the Father and the Son, that love. Now, this is the only time in the, the entire New Testament that this is used to refer to the Father's love for the Son. So it's an eternally uninterrupted, all-knowing love that makes no room for ignorance, making it impossible for Jesus to have been unaware of God's will about the Sabbath or anything else. It's perfect in every way. And Jesus says the Father will show him greater works than healing of the crippled man. He'll show us greater works. Those, that are, those works that amaze the crowds, but he's going to raise the dead. You want to get a crowd's attention? I think raising the dead would do it. We had a person one time in my hometown. She went to the funeral home and said, she announced to the funeral director, I am here to raise all the dead back there in, 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 that you have back there, ready to be buried. To which they said, and I like this, go have at it. <laughs> now, I think I've told this story before because I repeat myself a lot, but you know, you know what happened? She didn't raise the dead. <laughs> if she had raised the dead... That would have been the newspaper, right? And if it had been, I would have gone and seen to it. It wasn't the newspaper, right? That will get your attention. Greater works than these. Jesus is going to raise the dead. He's going to see Lazarus in John chapter 11. Beautiful picture. <laughs> but it's not just that. Not just a physical raising. It's something far more important than that. We're going to see both of them right here. 
far more spectacular. And he says, and the crowds, they'll marvel. But Jesus would not just raise the bodily dead, he will raise the dead spiritually. He says he was giving, verse 21, giving life uh, to whom he will, to the glory of the Father, verse 21 here. And the scripture teaches that only God, of course, can raise the dead because his power is the same as the Father. Jesus is able to raise the physically dead, but here he's speaking of bestowing spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead, right? We are dead people. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He distributes life. He calls forth the dead from the grave spiritually to whom he will. He looks into the darkness of your depraved hearts and says, let there be light. He does it to whom he will. He doesn't owe us anything, does he? Owes us his wrath. That's what our deeds have earned. That's what our sins have earned. That's the payment we should receive. The Father raises the dead and gives life to the Son to give to whom he will. This giving of life, whether life in the physical birth or spiritual life or the life of bodily resurrection is entirely God's prerogative. So Jesus here is claiming to be God. In case they missed it, I'm going to raise the dead. Now this individual in my hometown did not claim to be Jesus or God, thankfully. Just claimed to be able to raise the dead if we had enough faith. Probably blamed the rest of us for not being able to raise the dead. I don't know. But Jesus will give, give, God, give life to whomever he will. And this new life is what he'll speak of in verse 24. And from a human perspective, how do they receive this spiritual life in Jesus? How do we, this, this bread of life, this water of life he's spoken of, the living water, how do we receive that? Well, verses 23 and 24, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't believe in God without believing in Jesus, following God without following Jesus, right? People are willing to talk about God, but they're really offended at Jesus, this nebulous God, but Jesus. He's, he goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, there it is, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's so much in here. We're going to just scrape the surface this morning, and I'm sorry. So much in here. Those who will have new life will, one, they will hear the word of God, the gospel. How do we, how do we know? Well, knowing comes by hearing, right? If you're a Christian, and most of you in this room are, I trust, you heard the word of God somewhere, and God worked through his word by his spirit in your heart. You heard, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You heard the word of Christ, right? That's what he's saying here. The voice of the Son of God. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts you and draws you, and then they, secondly, believe it. You believed. Trust in Christ. They'll hear with faith. Remember gospel, John's gospel, hearing is believing. Of synonyms, right? Hearing is believing. Their dead hearts begin to course with new life. They repent of their sins and believe in God who sent the Son to live a sinless life and complete His work on the cross. They believe in that Savior, that Jesus. Only that Jesus can do helpless sinners good. And if they can, they have eternal life. And let me point this out. If you can lose it, it's not eternal life. And this is, the Bible misspeaks at this point, right? If it's what good is something you lose if God says He's eternal and yet you can lose it. And I'll just come back to that at some point. I know we've taught on that here, but 
That's important. I can't believe how many folks believe that. Christians believe you can lose your salvation. But it's not eternal life. He says they have eternal life. And of course, John 10, no one can snatch them out of the hands of the Son or the Father. I've got them. They're in my hands and it's my work and no one can snatch them out of my hands. Zion and the Father are one. We're going to get this, this unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit all through John's gospel. That's John 10. And because they have eternal life, they do not come into judgment. Because why? Well, their sins were judged at Calvary. That is what the cross is expressing to us, that you bore, Jesus bore the wrath we should have borne. And so they won't come into judgment because their sins have been judged, not because God is just this sort of celestial God, grandfather who yawns and says, you know, you're a pretty good chap. You're, I, I'm going to overlook your sins. I'll look the other way. No, no, no. No, your sins were paid for by the blood of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The just died for the unjust. Do you understand what grace that is? What mercy that is that's come to you, that's come to me? You don't come into judgment. You deserve judgment. And Jesus bore the judgment at Calvary. That's what's happening. All of hell's wrath was being poured out on him on the cross on Golgotha's hill. On that first Friday, on that first Easter, a good Friday, all the wrath you deserve, that I deserve, was being poured out. All of hell's wrath, all the devil could bring poured out on him for our sins and Jesus paid it all every bit down to the last farthing scripture tells us use the old King James language and now finally fifthly in this little in this verse you you passed from death to life spiritual death to spiritual life physical death to physical life because you were dead in your trespasses and sins on the way on the path to eternal destruction but now you have eternal life in Christ and that is the story of every single one of us if you're here today and you're in Christ there was a time when you were dead but no more you've passed from death to life glory be to God we learn here we're going to deal with this under the next point but Jesus will judge all people verses 22, 24, 27, 29 a lot of judgment in here Jesus being the judge Whoever believes in the Son is from, will pass from death to life and not come again into judgment. Because Jesus is the Son of Man, God has given him authority to judge all human beings at the end of time. Which leads me to my last point, which is the conclusion. You have the accusation, the clarification, now you have the conclusion of the matter here. Jesus will give life to some, and he will judge others. And here we meet the uh, spiritual resurrection versus the physical resurrection. Again, verse 25, Jesus draws a distinction between the two. And one is a picture of the other, of course. The spiritual resurrection is a picture of the physical resurrection. And, of course, vice versa. And, of course, we, these speaks here of what's happening to us now, what will happen. And we, we, it's true, and we've said this many times, that we are saved and we are being saved. Right? So we must run the race all the way to the end. We can't lose it. And for in Christ, we will run the race all the way to the end. And we may slow down at times, and we may go backward at times, and we may fall into sin at times, and harassed by Satan and the world and the flesh at times. But we will run it all the way to the end, this race of faith, won't we? If we're in Christ, and we won't be judged. I mean, the present here, he says, the dead will hear the voice of God's Son, and those who hear will live. And the voice is the preaching, the word about Christ, and then the hearing, and the hearing is the, becomes the believing, and we live. Because Jesus said, the hour is now here. That's why this is, I believe this speaks of spiritual resurrection. The hour is now here. He's not talking about the final resurrection, not yet. 
but a present reality. This hour of salvation is now here. And by the way, if you're not saved, today's the day of salvation. The hour is now here. The present reality. He's talking about those who are dead in their sins coming to life through the power of God's Spirit and regeneration. The dead, it's the spiritually dead, they will come to life. It's precisely what Paul said in Ephesians 2, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The humans, as the sons and daughters of Adam, spiritually dead, when we enter the world, as I've said already, we have a natural inclination, a responsiveness, none at all, no ability to please God, as Jonathan Edwards put it, no moral ability. We can do nice things, but they're always motivated by sin. We can be good to our neighbor, but it's motivated by some, you know, we want to make look good before the world. We want them to like us, you know, or something. There's all kinds of motivations. But nothing, only that which is by faith will glorify God. And we can only do that out of a redeemed heart. And so we must hear the voice of the Son of God and arise from our spiritual tombs and come to God. That's what's in view here. An hour is coming and is now here and the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear, hearing is believing, they will live. Dead hearts hear the effectual call, which is happening right now. I mean, the, or the general call is happening right now. The general call, then the effectual call, God draws them to himself. The gospel is effective. That's what I mean by effectual call. It effects a result. And they come out of the tomb. Think of the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus said what? Jesus spoke his word, Lazarus, come out, come forth. And what happened? Well, it didn't, it didn't happen like it did in my hometown. I think she went on for two hours. They said, and come out, come out, come out. Wherever you are, well, they stayed in. Lazarus came out. Because the Son of God, he heard the voice of the Son of God, of his Savior, of his Creator, his Lord, his Savior, and he came out. Of course, Lazarus was going to die again, right? He was going to die again. So that only did minimal good for him. But the point is, Jesus is showing us an illustration of what happens to our hearts that are dead and what must happen if we would be saved, if we would know him as Lord and Savior. So we come to the present. Verse 26, the Son gives life. Are we in the present? This explains why the voice of Jesus is able to speak to dead people and give them life in the first place. The Son gives life. Just as the Father was never created, was never given his life by somebody else, so the Son has in himself the power to give life because he is uncreated. He can impart it to others. He has granted this to the Son. The Father has granted the ability of the Son to, to give life. The Father created the Son, but... I mean, this does not mean that the Father created the Son, but that the Father has authorized the Son to be the life-giving agent. Jesus was uncreated, of course. He was made man, he became man, but as God, the second verse of the Godhead, he is also uncreated. It's precisely what John meant in the prologue in chapter 1. He said to the Son of God, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We encounter here a very important doctrine. And that is God's self-existence. God is self-existing. We have it clearly affirmed here. God is the creator of the universe and is himself uncreated. Because there's a crucial distinction. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning, Zach, didn't we? Between the creation and the creator. Pantheism says it's all God. But the Bible says, no, there's a distinction. 
the creation has pointer glory to point to its creator, to give the creator glory, but it's not the creator. It's not to be worshipped because it's impossible for something to create itself. It is against reason. And I have to plead, we have to plead with this culture, don't we, today to be reasonable. It is against reason to believe that nothing plus nothing equals something. Or that nothing plus nothing equals everything. That is against reason, isn't it? It is against logic. And yes, it is against science to believe that. The concept of self-existence violates no law of reason, no logic, and it does not violate science to believe that, contrary to popular opinion. I mean, because unless something existed in itself, nothing could possibly exist at all. There had to be a first cause for us to be here. There had to be something that wasn't depending on something else for its existence, for there to be existence. So the answer to the oldest question in human history, how could there be something rather than nothing? Well, because of God. Because God always existed. He has life in himself. Jesus is here saying, I am God, in case you missed it, just like the Father. Distinct persons, but like the Father, like the Father, as granted by the Father, I have life in myself to give life to whom I please, both spiritual life and physical life. Why else can he give life? Well, because he's also the son of man. Verse 27, this echoes Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel chapter 13, where he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man, like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's the father, and was presented before him. The word son of man here, that entails, combines both human and divine traits, so Jesus is, is using this messianic title. He's owning this messianic, messianic title for himself as a fulfillment of the uh, kind of this mysterious human divine figure spoken of, uh, presented before the Ancient of Days there in Daniel 7. And Jesus is a fulfillment of that. Again, how we put our Bibles together, right? Jesus has been given authority to bring life and execute judgment because he is the promised one, the Messiah. And oh, did the Jews ever understand that. They got it. Loud and clear, they wanted to kill him for it. But Jesus came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. Not as a free agent. Because of the covenant relationship that within the members of the Holy Trinity made before the foundation of the world. I mean, I think one application of that for us is this. Do you accept the position that God has given you in life? Where he's put your station in life? I find the most complaints... In my own heart, and in some of yours, I don't mean everybody in mind here, but against God for how things are right now. The way things used to be are always great, usually with us, some, there's some golden age in our lives, right? Or it'll be better in the future, and the way it is now, and I am the world's worst in my family, probably laugh about this, or you're making this point, yeah. Do we do our, or are we happy with the station life, or do we want to do our own will? I mean, Jesus came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. I know we're not, we're not where we want to be, right? You say, well, I'm not where I want to be. 
I mean, Jesus was the perfect son, perfect man, per- obeyed perfectly, doing precisely what the Father wanted him to do and what he wanted to do. But what about you? Are you submitting to God in his goodness where he's placed you in life and you may not like it right where you are right now and I often find myself to be discontented with where I am in life or where the church is right now. We talk a lot about that around here. Are we content just to be faithful and say, you know, you've got this. Jesus did the Father's will. He didn't do his own will and we've got to do the same whether it refers to our lives, our ministries, our jobs, this church, our, 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 where we are as parents, or whether we're single or wherever we are, right? We move on here. One application, but the future. The son will raise the dead physically at the end of time, verses 28 and 29. This is an affirmation of what is expressed in the Old Testament less clearly. Daniel 12, chapter, uh, verse 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt. Jesus is claiming the power of resurrection in himself, which is a power available only to God. But note in here, as you've heard me say many times, and I love it because I love this phrase, there is a payday someday. If you've not listened up to now, listen now. There is a payday coming someday. Look what he says here, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Okay, there we go. When all who are in their tombs will hear his voice, they'll hear Christ's voice, and they will come out physically, physical resurrection. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's only two final destinations, isn't there, presented here. Resurrection of life. And the resurrection of judgment. J.C. Ryle wrote, when all is not over when men die, whether they like it or not, they will have to come forth from their graves at the last day and to stand at Christ's judgment bar. It's coming and we can deny it and laugh at it all we want to and I know no one here is doing that, but the world is. They will stand before Christ's judgment bar. None can escape his summons. When his voice calls them before him, all must obey. When men arise again, they will not all rise in the same condition. There will be two classes, two parties, two bodies. Not all will go to heaven. Not all will be saved. Some will rise again to inherit eternal life, but some will rise again only to be condemned. There's no more sobering truth in all of Scripture than this right here. And I'm not sure I can muster enough seriousness to, to even communicate that to you. It's heaven or hell. I mean, Jesus says here, those who have done good receive resurrection life. He doesn't mean salvation is earned by good works. That would be to contradict what he just said in verse 24. He who hears my word and believes him has sent, who sent me has eternal life. It doesn't contradict that. But good works function as evidence of saving faith, that you not just profess saving faith, but you possess saving faith. And if good works are lacking, they show that saving faith is probably absent. I mean, in an ongoing kind of way. It's heaven or hell. And this is the future for every person who's ever lived. Whoever believes in the Son of God, his death and resurrection will be raised and enjoy new life and the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus and his kingdom of light and righteousness. But oh, for all who do not trust in him, 
Do not flee to him. Let this thought grip your mind and your heart as we think about upcoming holiday season and people we may be around and even the work we hope to do in this church. God has appointed a day, a day in which all men and women who ever lived will stand before him and be judged. And we have to ask ourselves, where are we going to be on that day? Are we going to be in Christ? I mean, as J.C. Rawls said, death is not the end. I mean, you and I, whoever we may be, must stand before him. That's a date we will have to keep and we won't be late. Will your judgment be unto life? Because you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, your only hope of eternal life, or will it be unto condemnation? Because you've missed the Son. Will you, be united, will you be united to God or separated from Him forever in hell in the place of darkness and eternal torment? Where will it be? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there is no need for anyone to remain under the wrath of God. Certainly no need for anyone here because you hear this every single week, many of you. No need for anyone to remain under the wrath of God. The way of escape is wide open. And indeed it is. As I preached weeks ago, the Bible's invitation is our invitation. It's come. It's come. Come to Jesus. The way of escape is wide open. There's one way. People say, well, that's not fair. Well, we want what's fair. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, but what can happen to anyone who deliberately refuses to accept the offer of salvation save to suffer consequences of that refusal? That is why the gospel is good news. The wrath of God is already revealed. But now the way of escape, that wrath is also revealed in the gospel of Christ. To argue about and to object to the wrath and in the meantime ignore the announcement concerning the love and grace is only the height of folly, foolishness. Foolishness to resist the salvation that is before you. This one way for all people, for all time through the blood of Christ. Foolishness to resist that, to reject that. Also to condemn oneself to needless suffering, he says, and punishment. And at the same time, it robs us of every excuse and plea. And beloved, that requires humility. To humble yourself to say, I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do to save myself. I'm a poor, miserable, wretched sinner. I deserve God's wrath to be poured out on me because God is holy and I am not. So if you come to a place where you've understood that you need a Savior that you are a sinner, need to have your sins taken away? You understand you're facing God's wrath, that there is a payday someday and today could be the day I don't know and you don't know? Do you live every day as if Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God, he's who he claimed to be? Are you seeking to live out the implications of that? Are you satisfied with the station where God has put you in life or are you just really discontent because all you've got is Christ? So I love that, that song we sing here sometimes. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And friends, he is all you need. He's all you need. And I think we just, we hear this so much, and I know this is my temptation, we just kind of take it for granted, don't we? We think, you know, I know, I heard it, I've heard it, and I've heard it, and I've heard it. And every time we hear it, we're just, we're more accountable to it a little bit more. And we're either softened a little bit more or made more like Jesus a little more or we're hardened a little bit more. 
Are you seeking to do God's will for your life? Or are you seeking to do your own will? Are you, which is to say, are you cultivating humility? Called to be like Christ, and while we, of course, aren't called to be the Savior of the world, we're called to lay down our own wills and to follow His will. How do we do that? Well, I'm going to leave you with this verse. How do we do this? Romans 12. This is just, I love Paul's words here, and I hate Paul's words here. <laughs> because they show me my shortcomings, right? I love it because I know it's so clear. It is crystal clear what we are to do once we are in Christ. And yet, somehow, it far too often eludes me to live it out. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's day in and day out, every day of your life. Not just in church, not just on Sunday morning or a couple of Sunday mornings a month or whatever. Your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is your spiritual worship here and out there and everywhere, every day. And he says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into its mold. It wants you to be pressed into its mold. Oh, does it ever. And it will cancel you if you will not, but you must not. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we're here for, transformation. By the renewing of our minds, that by testing, we may discern what the will of God. Testing everything by Scripture, discerning the will of God as Jesus followed the Father, did His will, not His own will. You lay down your will, lay down your rights, your so-called rights, and you follow God. And discern what is the will of God, what is good. It is going to be always good. And it may not feel good. It may hurt to follow him. You may suffer. You may, you may be beheaded for following him. But it's good. It's acceptable. Because it's calculated to glorify God. Calibrated for his glory. So he accepts that living sacrifice. It's acceptable to him. And it's perfect. This is how we're to live, beloved. So let us go forth today. And by the grace of this son of God. Make sure that we're ready for that day, that payday someday. And we're living life submitted utterly and completely by his grace to his will. Let's pray together. Father, I've done, I know that there's so much more in here, Lord, and yet time fails us. There's so much I could have said and so many directions I could have gone and I wrestled with it and it wrestled with me and this is where we've landed. I pray you'd use it, Lord. Use it for our edification, for our sanctification and and for salvation of those who don't know you. And use it for your glory. Oh, Lord, give us grace. Give us a desire to live out Romans 12. And to lay down our lives. And lay down, to take up our cross and follow you daily, Lord. And do your will for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.